Hello, I'm Tanya McCartney, and I create kids' books. I'm an author, illustrator, and editor, and I'm here to share with you over 30 years of writing and publishing experience. This is where you'll find insights, insider info, interviews, and inspiration to take with you on your kids' book journey. Welcome to The Happy Book. creators and welcome to chapter two of the happy book in this chapter i'll take you through the entire creation and production process of the humble picture book what more could you want truly is there anything better you'll learn about where ideas come from what themes are overdone the types of picture book narrative the layout and structure of pages who comes together to create a picture book narrative and visual narrative, dialogue, illustration, storycraft, word count, pacing, and insider info that will make your toes curl with delight. Picture books are my favorite topic ever. So let's get started. Right, so I'm starting this podcast with a nice cup of green tea and a protein bar. Now where do we begin? I think the first thing to remember about picture books is that they're not really technically for three to eight-year-olds, although that's the generalized target market for them. I think they have ageless appeal. Babies adore them. Toddlers adore them. Of course, primary school age kids fall in love with them. But there's many an adult who pours over a picture book and gleans so much meaning from it. You know, like Pixar films where the kids are laughing along at one thread in the narrative and adults are laughing at another thread. This is what picture books do. They hold so much joy and meaning in the visual narrative and hidden meaning in the text. If you're a parent, grandparent, carer, librarian, teacher, anyone who deals with children, don't fall prey to prescribing picture books to a certain age group. There are many children who are in early years of high school or even older who take great delight in picture books, as adults do. I write picture books because I adore visual narrative and art, and I think that they are really valuable tools for children to fall in love with the art of story. And of course, story is vital to the human condition. It's far easier to fall into a picture book, particularly for kids struggling to read or who suffer from learning difficulties. If, like me, you're really interested in writing or illustrating picture books, the very first thing is to come up with an idea. Of course, there's supposedly only seven story ideas possible, but the possibilities for the way we write and present these ideas are endless. As I said in the last podcast, I think it's really important not to get caught up in the concept of ideas being stolen if you share them with other people. There are plenty of books that share the same sort of idea or the same themes, and each time they're done, they're done with the spirit and essence of the creators, so they end up not being the same at all. While repeating the same themes or story ideas is fine, I think the key is to find a different way to do it each time. There's a slew of ABC books, counting books and other concept books. There will always be books on certain themes like grandparents and Christmas and dads and all that kind of thing. But it's how we write and illustrate these similar themes that matters. Essentially what you want to do is do it differently. Try a new way. How can you uplift this story and present it in a way that's not been seen before? 
I've collected endless versions of The Night Before Christmas in picture books because I simply love the different styles of illustration and I can never get enough of this book. I love the tale, I love the poetry of it. But I am always looking for a different style of illustration, a different format for the book, something that I haven't seen before. And that's something you should hold in mind as you come up with your own ideas and themes. How can you do this differently so that it will stand out? And even if your buyer has many books in that theme, they'll want yours as well. When I do school visits, kids often ask me about how I get my ideas. And I have five different ways. The first is from people. When I visit schools, I'm often enchanted and um, take great delight in the things kids do and say. They might say something funny or curious that really inspires me to create a new story. The other thing that I really draw a lot of ideas from is simply everyday things that happen. For example, I remember making a cake and I had a little one of those tubes of hundreds and thousands in a little cellophane packet and I opened the packet and the hundreds and thousands scattered all over the bench and pounced everywhere like ping pong balls and looked quite beautiful actually and this inspired a picture book story that I've been pottering away on for a couple of years now actually. Another way I find my ideas is through events. I've done a Christmas book and I'd love to do a Mother's Day, Father's Day book. My book, An Aussie Year, 12 Months in the Life of Australian Kids, is essentially about events. It's based on events, so it takes readers through an entire Australian year, uh, featuring all the little idiosyncrasies that happen in a generic childhood and all of the events that occur through the year. I love the events theme because you're able to incorporate a lot of diversity and cultural awareness, which is something that's a common theme in a lot of my picture books, and it has great meaning to me. Memories are a real driver for story ideas for me, and I think for most people, when we ran the Kids Book Review Unpublished Manuscript Award for Picture Books, a lot of the themes were driven by memory and by the writer's own childhood. So this is pretty common to reflect back to when we were children. And in fact, that's what we should be doing with picture books is reflecting back to when we were kids so that we can feel and speak in the voice of children. Picture books need to be written in a way that children can really resonate with and relate to. So memories are inspiring and really authentic Childhood is a magical and raw place and the themes that we can come up with from our memories are, are often really impactful. It also doesn't have to be a series of memories from childhood. It might be something that we remember from earlier in our life or from a past time in history, uh, someone else's memory perhaps, and that can inspire some wonderful themes for picture books. An Aussie year was also inspired by our time in Beijing. We lived there with our small children for four years, starting in 2005. And one thing I noticed about the Asian picture book market is that it had a lot of fabulous books about their culture and about their year and about how children moved through their year and interacted with friends and family and cultural pursuits and events. And I realised that we didn't have anything like that in Australia, so I was super inspired to create something uh, that reflected our hugely diverse country, and that's where an Aussie year came about. You could say then that this book was totally inspired by other books. 
You might find too that when you're reading picture books or even or any kind of book, even adult books, that you will become inspired with new themes or inspired to write your own books. And when I visit schools, I often ask children if they have that feeling when they're reading a book they're really enjoying, are they inspired to write stories? And the answer is always a resounding yes. So other books are hugely inspiring for picture book ideas. Just remember that when you do pen these ideas that you make them completely your own and that you think about ways to make them different. Now here are my top tips for finding fabulous story ideas yourself. In my PDF workshop, The Fantastical Flying Creator, I'll put a link in the show notes, I talk about how vital it is to tap into your eight-year-old self when it comes to writing for children. This is the same thing for ideas, tapping into that magical raw period of your life. So when you do come up with a story idea, think about how it resonates with your eight-year-old self. Does it feel authentic? As I talked about before, the other way to come up with great story ideas is in the tiny little things that happen in your everyday. Something you saw, something you heard, something you experienced. Look around you, take notice, and when you do find something that sparks an idea, be sure to write it down because you can bet that it'll disappear in a heartbeat, particularly if it's the middle of the night. Be inspired by children, yes, but also take inspiration from your current adult loves. You might be obsessed with cake or photography or adventure sports. Brainstorm ideas in the themes that resonate with you and that bring you joy because, as I said in episode one, when we write what we love, there's a real authenticity there and a real passion. Draw on your expertise. What have you trained in? What are your qualifications? What are you an expert in? You might be a marine biologist in a past life. You might be a circus performer. Draw on those elements from your past that you shine at and incorporate them into your work. Many publishers absolutely adore experts in their field and draw on them to create books that harness their expertise. This is often the case with non-fiction books, books about science or geology or medicine or whales or lolly production. Kids love that kind of thing. And these sorts of books are perfect for the education market as well. On that note, if you do produce a book that has some educational qualities, and let's face it, almost all books do have some kind of educational quality, even if it's hidden in the narrative, then this is another thing that's attractive to publishers because not only can they tackle the regular trade market with your book, they can also tackle the educational market, so schools and libraries and institutions. This effectively doubles the market for your book. And now for the don'ts. Don't try to mimic other books. There's been so many books pop up that are such a flagrant ripoff of another successful book and it's just tiresome. Come up with something original and unique. Dig deep and listen to the characters and the stories busting to come through you because they will be there. Be really wary of story ideas that are too moralistic or didactic. You don't want to openly teach kids a lesson. No child likes to be lectured and told what to do. It just goes against their entire being as kids. So really try to avoid didactic books. I can't stand them. 
I think that if there is to be some kind of meaning or theme or lesson behind a story, it should be imperceptibly woven into the narrative or into the visual. It's not fair on children to presume that they're, you know, dunkoffs because they're not. They're brilliant, they're clever, and they understand so much more than we give them credit for. So please don't be tempted to state the bleed and obvious and just allow stories to unfold and trust that children will really get nuance and meaning because even very young kids will. If, for example, you wanted to write a picture book about healthy eating, do it in a way that's fun and clever and that entertains children first. One of my catch cries is to entertain, enchant, enlighten first and educate second. As I said before, most books have some kind of educational quality to them, even if it's some kind of moral or values implication. But writing a book to encourage kids to eat great food by hammering them over the head with obviousness is not going to work, nor is shaming children. So think of ways that you can effect the same result without resorting to hammering. Make it fun and happy. Be really wary of writing something that you think will fill a perceived market gap. It just never works because it's forced and it's not authentic most of the time, unless that gap is something that you really are passionate about. I'll never forget one of my publishers saying to me that if a book gap exists, it's probably for a reason. And I thought that was really funny because it's not something I'd thought of before. This brings me to themes that are really, really done to death. We tend to go through periods in the children's book industry where something is really, really cool or contemporary or on topic, and of late it's been diversity, which has been absolutely brilliant. It's something I'm personally passionate about. While books on magic, fairies, trucks, dogs, monsters, mud and grandma are pretty much done to death, if you can do these themes in a way that's fresh and new and that hasn't been seen before, there will always be room for it and it always has the potential to do well. Because let's face it, kids will always love dinosaurs and fairies and pirates and all of these other themes that are so prolific. There's a reason that there are a lot of books on these themes because they are so much fun for kids and they're so attracted to them. Superheroes and Journeys is another one that's always hugely popular, as are characters who have some kind of a reverence. Kids love that kind of thing. So if you're going to do something like that, by all means do it. Just do it in a way that's not same old, same old. You don't want your work to flop. You want it to shine and you need to be different. I know you've probably heard it a million times before, but it really does bear saying again, just write what you love and what you resonate with. A lot of the creators I talk to tell me that they essentially write books that they would like to read or that they would have loved to read as a child. So if you're writing about something you're impassioned about and are in love with, then you really can't go wrong. As for themes that really resonate with kids, you can't go wrong with humour, action, adventure, nonsense, silliness, uh, villains and heroes, cute, spooky, cool, emotional and really decent protagonists, particularly those who are irreverent and brave and go against the grain. Animals, of course, are hugely popular with children and always will be, as are vehicles and houses, particularly houses that they can explore. The underdog is also something that children are hugely attracted to, even at that young age, because they love to champion 
the one who is losing or seems to be losing. Right, now that you have your fabulous idea and you've thought about ways to make it different and stand out from the rest, it's time to think about your target market, the age group that you are writing for. The classical age range for picture books is three to eight. So that takes us from daycare, three-year-old preschool through to about years three and four. Although, as we all know, 104-year-olds love picture books as well. So while picture books are absolutely ageless and will appeal to all age groups, we do need to keep close focus on the readership because essentially picture books are a way for children to learn to read. And we need to ensure that we're allowing children the opportunity to understand the written word and to be able to decode it. I think it's perfectly fine to add more difficult words to picture books, and a lot of authors do do this. I'm one of them because Of course, oftentimes children will have these books read to them or they'll be in a position where they can ask an adult what a word means. I also think that we can't underestimate how well children learn words by association or within context of a sentence. So while you might present a simple sentence, you might throw flippity-jibbit in there and that is often easily decoded by children because they can understand the meaning via the context of the story. Of course, the difference between the comprehension and reading ability of a three-year-old is vastly different to that of an eight-year-old. So we can't get too caught up in making things too simplistic or too complicated. We just have to write what resonates and what we feel works well with the story. Our text count and our vocabulary usage will change according to the themes of the story. For example, when I wrote Peas in a Pod, which was illustrated by Tina Snurling, we knew that this would be for the younger side of that bracket, so we're talking three, four, five-year-olds, and I created the text to suit. Same with Smile Cry, illustrated with Jess Rackleft. This is literally a book uh, of maybe one, two, three, four or five words per page. So it's directly aimed at the early childhood market and there's absolutely nothing wrong with designing your story to fit a certain age group. Though do bear in mind that older kids will also be attracted to these books. My teenagers still read picture books and they take much delight in them. We have to remember that the visual narrative is a hugely important part of the picture book. So do focus on a particular area if you need to. If you'd like to do something a little younger or a little older, but don't get too caught up in worrying about covering all bases because it will absolutely do your head in. With any age group, what you really need to do is make sure there's potential for page turning. Make sure a child will be reading through that story and they simply cannot wait to turn the page and see what happens next. Essentially, a picture book, each spread, each double page spread is like its own mini narrative its own visual story so when that story when that spread is read through we should feel compelled to turn the page and find out what happens next a bit like those cliffhangers or endings at the end of chapter books this may sound a little bit complicated but as you grow and learn about the flow of a picture book you'll begin to understand this more A great way to affect this is to simply make sure the story is moving forward at every opportunity 
that there's always some kind of action unfolding, even if it's soft or slow action, and that the protagonist is compelled to move forward. As for the style of narrative or the plot, there are generally three recognised, and this is being very general, three recognised narrative styles. So, of course, we have the linear picture book, which has a beginning, a middle and an end. We have a climax somewhere in the story and a resolution at the end. That climax can happen on page two or it can happen on the final page. Generally, it's towards the middle or middle end that the climax will actually occur. So that lineal journey is a journey and it's a way for the characters to grow and become something else by the end of the story. The next typical narrative styling is the cyclical or the rounded story where we start in one place and we move around and come back to the beginning in some way. The characters in the storyline can most certainly evolve and grow, but we do come back full circle in the end even if it's only some kind of text reference to the start of the book. I also believe that even linear storylines need to some way reference the beginnings of a story, even if it's in visuals, just so we can feel satisfied and rounded at the end of the story. And if you look at classic story structure, this often happens. You'll have some kind of return to the beginning. As an example, in Peas in a Pod, we meet a set of quintuplets. Pippa, Pia, Poppy, Polly and Peg. I can't believe I got that right. And they start out as little babies at the beginning of the book, lying on a mat with their thumbs in their mouths. And the whole essence of the book is that the kids learn how to become independent and unique rather than all the same. Of course, they look visually the same, but as they grow and get older, they start to change. The cyclical nature of this book is that at the end of the book we see the girls much older, six or seven years old, and they are going to sleep. They're all very, very different. We've established that they've become independent individuals who look and think and act differently. But as they're falling asleep in the bed, they all have their thumbs in their mouths, which brings us back to the first page when they were little babies that looked the same and all had their thumbs in their mouths. And what I love about this ending is that not only does it come back full circle and reference the beginning of the book to give it that lovely rounded feeling, but it also reflects the meaning of the book in that it's so important to be individualistic and to have our own self and sense of self and be independent. But when it comes down to it, no matter how different we are, we all have so very much of us that remains the same. The last main type of narrative structure is the episodic book. I've actually written quite a few in this narrative structure because I write a lot of non-fiction and I also write a lot of picture books for very young children and episodic books can work very well for that age group. Smile, Cry and See Here are episodic in that they have an overall narrative arc in that we're learning about three animal friends who are experiencing their different emotions. But we also have pretty much standalone double page spreads. So each spread has its own theme and its own action. They're not really linked in any narrative way per se, but the characters do inevitably sort of grow and make realisations and change as the story moves on, and that's what gives it that overreaching narrative arc. 
With an Aussie year, it's the same kind of episodic structure in that each spread is broken down into 12 double-page spreads, one for each month of the year. And again, that's an episodic narrative where we are covering an entire arc of one year, but we are featuring separate unrelated pages or spreads. You can absolutely do an episodic book that has quite a strong narrative thread. That is possible. You would somehow link them together to create a larger story. And that's pretty much life, isn't it, I guess? So that would actually be quite fun to do a book like that. All right, time is really slipping away on me here, so let's move on through. Next, I wanted to talk about word count. One of the uh, major... Well, I guess that's not a mistake, but the misunderstandings around emerging creators when it comes to picture books is the word count. Oftentimes the word count is two, three, four, five, ten times too high. It's generally accepted that no more than 500 words should be contained within a regular trade picture book. In fact, many publishers much prefer three to 400 words, and I'm kind of one of those people because of the visual narrative. I'll actually talk about this visual narrative shortly because it's a whole other kettle of fish and it's really important. But finishing up on the word count, yes, there are some books that stretch to 700, 1,000, 1,500 words, but each word so beautifully earns its place. And that's something to keep in mind as you write. And books of this kind of word count also have a beautiful pacing to them, sometimes really well done rhyme, and that allows the story to flow beautifully and work really well with the image without cluttering. These books, incidentally, are often written by really experienced creators. So if you're an emerging creator and love picture books, do consider doing something pretty succinct. Whatever words you write... Every single one of them must be really essential to the storyline and must provide some kind of visual inspiration. A really good example of a high text or high word count picture book is Alison Lester's Running with the Horses. And this book is beautifully laid out and designed because it features a high text narrative on one side of the page, of this uh, double page spread. So we have text covering an entire page, and on the opposite page is a correlating image. This book is designed for slightly older readers, although of course younger readers will love it too, especially if it's read to them. So it is possible to do a really engaging, dynamic picture book with high text, and oftentimes, interestingly, this type of text will be something that's non-fiction or historical or informative in nature rather than a narrative. Now, I wanted to go back to the concept of keeping visuals in mind because this is really important. Fundamentally, a picture book is two dual narratives. You have the text narrative and you have the image narrative. And I hate to break it to you, authors, but the visual narrative is what carries a picture book and should be the main focus. Even if you're not a hugely visual-driven person, you can still envisage how your story is going to unfold. In fact, most writers will tell you that this is the case. So as you're going through your story and thinking about how things will look visually, remember the good old show don't tell. This show don't tell concept often bamboozles people and because it's such an esoteric sort of uh, concept, but I've discovered that probably the best way to understand it and to action it is to actually act, have your characters act have them say and do things 
And essentially then you're showing how the story will unfold rather than just telling what telling the uh, reader what they are doing. As an actual example, let's imagine a little boy called Ethan walking to the shops. When we tell our readers what's happening, we would say, Ethan walked to the shops. He wasn't very happy about going to the shops. But when we show the reader what's happening, we might say, Ethan's feet were heavy on the footpath. He plodded along. He could see the shops in the distance. His tummy twisted. Do you see the difference here? We're getting to the depth of his emotion and we're showing what's happening rather than just literally outlining exactly what he's doing. Also remember that for all their cinematic quality, picture books are static. An image is static, a double page spread is static. If we describe a character lowering their head and thinking about something, how are we going to portray that in image? It's just not going to happen. You can certainly have this type of text in a junior fiction series where we're describing what's happening because there are no pictures. But each time you write text, it needs to hold some illustration potential. And if you're just talking about a kid lowering his head and thinking about things, that's a pretty boring image. There's nothing happening in it and it just can't carry a full page or even part of a page. Each page of a picture book is precious real estate and it must be used in a way that advances the story and provides amazing illustration potential and that glorious visual narrative. Not a single page patch can be wasted on information that isn't interesting, dynamic or doesn't progress the story. This brings me to dialogue and this is a real bugbear of mine in picture books because I don't believe, unless it's absolutely essential to the narrative, that it really has a place. I think that I liken it to being in a cinema and I'm immersed in this incredible film and suddenly someone coughs and I feel like I've been drawn out of the film. If you open a picture book with kids chatting, the problem is, is that the reader is just observing. They're just listening to what's going on. They're not falling into the story and being amongst that group of children chatting. They are standing outside watching them chat. The other thing is that having kids talk about something really has no illustration potential. We're just standing there watching these kids chat. We need to have some kind of action and progression. We don't want to hear about what the kids are going to be doing. We want to see them doing it. Children are active in the world. They're not passive. They don't want to sit and listen to people talking. And even amongst themselves, they don't want to sit and chat. They want to get out and play and have fun and chat while they're doing that. So reflect that in your books. On conflict and resolution, this is a really important part of a narrative because what it does is it pulls the reader through the story. It pulls the characters through the story as well and it gives the characters something to work and strive for and something for the reader to champion and be interested in. We want to have a book that's a page turner and the way to do that is to provide the good old what happens next. How is this person going to get out of this? You've probably seen these picture books where something goes wrong a particular amount of times. This is really important because it builds intensity and excitement. So the good old three gongs and you're out, three things happen and finally the solution comes into play. That's a really powerful element to add to a story. But again, do think of ways that you can do it differently and surprise the reader. Don't do the old three gongs and you're out. Maybe do four or three and a half or in some way twist it up to make your story not so typical. 
Adding this conflict and resolution is not only exciting, but it makes your reader champion your character. And you want your reader to relate to or take interest in the character. You want them to either really like them, really dislike them, or at least be in some way intrigued or interested in them. Uh, particularly your main character therefore needs to be protagonistic and what we mean by that is they need to act and they need to solve problems themselves. A big no-no in children's books in general is to make the adult the hero. We want children to be the hero, the ones that resolve and solve things. There are so very many children's books and picture books that feature no adults at all or the parents have gone missing, or they've died, or they just live with grandma, or something like that. And that's because it makes the children's world bigger and more exciting. The last thing we want is for an adult to step, to step in and make things right again. We need to leave that up to the character. This kind of element really empowers children, and out of all the things we want books to do for children, it's to empower them and enrich them. And also, let's face it, it's a heck of a lot of fun to have kids running around, having adventures without a parent in sight. We all wanted that as a child, and kids still want that and will perennially, perennially want that. If you've written your story and you're finding that your character has ended up too passive or the sub-characters or supporting characters are the ones that really are the shining star, and this can happen quite a bit, then you need to rework your story or make your sub-character the protagonist. Right, so let's now talk about plot points. Because even in a really basic picture book narrative, even for early childhood, it's really important to insert these as you go along because it keeps the story rolling. We've already talked about conflict and resolution and they are great plot points because they build the story to a, a crescendo and then the story can fall away or resolve. So do hook up plot points as you go along. Go over your text and when you finish the story, um, tie them up or adjust them if need be because essentially what plot points will do is provide the narrative arc. So it depends, you know, where your, where your um, conflict and resolutions are going to be placed and where your crescendo is going to be placed. Remembering that something needs to happen in your story. This is a really important point because if something doesn't actually happen in your story, you don't have a story on your hands, you have an account. An account is essentially the kid got up, had his breakfast, went to school, came home and went to bed. That's an account. A story is when something happens to change and shift and grow the character and delight the reader and make them wonder what on earth is going to happen in the end. That's a story. And I've just seen far too many manuscripts in their early stages where essentially nothing really happens or something minor happens that in no way has meaning. So think about your story and how it's going to portray excitement and adventure and you know, some kind of growth and resolve. Sure, you can have a little girl getting up and going about her day and going to bed at the end of the day, but what along the way happens that is fun and interesting for kids and engages kids? What meaning are you trying to impart? As an example, Jess Rackleft and I are currently working on a book called Ivy Bird, and Ivy is a little girl who's obsessed with birds. The whole story is actually set in a single day. So it starts out in the morning when she wakes up and it ends with her going to bed at night. 
So it may seem that I'm completely contradicting what I've just said, but I want to explain to you why the book works and without giving too much away because it's not published yet. The book is essentially about birds and it has sub-narratives in the visuals. So Jess has designed these wonderful spreads that carry a sub-narrative or meaning about birds and about their well-being. And also the birds that are featured at the beginning of the book are morning birds and the ones that are featured at the end are are nightbirds. So there's this narrative parallel that runs through the book. Also because the book's for really early childhood, it's very simple in concept and a lot of what happens with Ivy and the birds through the book is what would happen in any child's daily life. So it's a kind of book to bring comfort and for children of very young ages to be able to relate to and feel a sense of warmth and home. It also has educational properties about birds and a um, meaningful sort of uh, message that I feel passionately about and that I wanted to convey. So although the narrative is extremely basic and simple in terms of the structure, it has a lot of hidden and inherent meaning, in fact, many different threads I hope you can uh, check it out. It's out probably at the end of 2019, see exactly what I'm talking about. I guess after discussing all this, it's really clear that there are no rules, but there are, and I know that's contradictory, but there's a wonderful saying about learning all the rules to the letter and, and mastering the rules, then you can break them. And I really believe that's true and it's something that you can develop over time and have a lot of fun with. So know the rules and then smash them to pieces once you've got them in place. Right, now let's talk about marrying text with image. So as you're writing, and I will talk to illustrators as well, think about how your text really draws in and invites illustration potential. So also remembering that thoughts and words and ideas cannot be illustrated um, and uh, also many abstract concept, uh, concepts, particularly for this age group, are very hard to put into pictures. So when you're writing and editing, ask yourself, does the text provide active and engaging illustration potential? I've seen manuscripts where literally seven or eight double-page spreads could be condensed into a single page because they're just rambling and repetitive and just there's just literally nothing occurs. So it would just be the, a kid standing there and then the next spread would be the same thing and then the next spread would be the same thing without any dramatic or dynamic change. So really keep focus and think about ways you can tighten your text to fit a smaller amount of page count, remembering that page count is really precious real estate. A lot of people ask me about illustration notes and often emerging creators are told that illustration notes are a big, big no-no. I know Bruce Watley throws out the notes the second he gets a manuscript and certainly this is a man with immense experience uh, who can glean subtlety and nuance from a text, so that's okay for him. But generally illustration notes should be there for a reason. If you have a little girl with curly red hair, the last thing you want to do is put an illustration note at the bottom saying this little girl has curly red hair, unless her curly red hair is absolutely vital and essential to the storyline in some way. This is really important to remember. So your illustration notes should only be used 
if your text is so tight and and um, succinct that you actually need to put some kind of note. For example, in Smile Cry, I have one or two words per page. So, of course, I had to show Jess what I was trying to mean by that text. And then I did it in such a way that was very, very light on so that she could also interpret how she wanted that scene to look. So it was just a basic, basic instruction. And then she went in and added the detail. If you allow things to be open-ended like that, what you do is you really open the creation of this book to some magic because illustrators are very visual people. They're also storytellers and they might see something in your text that you had not even seen. In fact, there's been plenty of time that I've sent text to illustrators and they've come up with something so sensational that I've changed the text to suit the illustration. Or they've contacted me and said, what about if this we did this? And I'm like, I love it. So letting go of expectation and control is really important when you're working with an illustrator. Again, yes, absolutely give guidance for illustration if it's vital to the storyline and the meaning of the story, but let go and allow the illustrator to grasp some brand new concepts and ideas and view it in a totally different way. That's the magic of a great picture book is that so very many people have a little bit to add to the story and to enrich it. Having said that, once illustrations do happen, if an illustrator has somehow missed a very vital part of the story in the illustration, then you must speak up about that. A good illustrator will uh, really glean a lot of the nuance and meaning and will carefully observe the story and any notes to ensure this doesn't happen. But even the best illustrators might go off on a tangent or misunderstand how things are cruising along and you want to ensure that the storyline's meaning is imparted in the image. So just basically putting your hand up and saying, listen, maybe if we could just change that to blue or because of this reason or add another bird over there because without it, you know, this can't happen later down the story, 99% of the time the illustrator will go, oh, golly, yes, of course, no problem at all. Occasionally you might have an illustrator who takes license, creative license, in a way that might not be good for the story or for your original vision. And again, that's time to step up. It happens pretty rarely in, in my experience. It's barely happened at all. But it is important to be able to stand your ground if you feel that the story is being hijacked a little or uh, in any way manipulated or changed to suit what they would like. Again, it's pretty rare, um, but just something to be aware of. For illustrators, particularly illustrators who are new to illustrating um, a narrative, I think the best thing to do is to really immerse in the text and spend time imagining, sketching and roughing some ideas around the text. Look for ways that you can actually add to the text and impart meaning and nuance from the text rather than just directly focus on what the text is saying and illustrating what the text is saying. How can you expand on the text and create more out of it rather than just literally reflect what it's saying? What's really exciting is that the collaboration between an author and an illustrator has really shifted over time. Many years ago, you would send in a text and the publisher would send it to an illustrator and it would come back done and you would then review it, go over it and be either devastated or thrilled. It's changing now and 
hallelujah that it is in that illustrators and authors are often working more closely together and having direct contact and discussing the process along the way. And I think this is really wise because it lends almost a third dimension to the collaboration. There's the author's part, the illustrator's part, and then the combined part of the two. So it's like a third relationship that adds real magic and, and dynamics to the entire production. I've been so fortunate to be able to do this with most of the books that I've worked on, in fact, all of them really, and it really is the preferred way to go. If you're in a situation where this isn't possible, do consider talking to your publisher about the possibility of networking directly. Remember that the visual narrative should absolutely be the focus of a picture book. So, for example, with Ivy Bird, we basically, the text or the central narrative is about a little girl waking up, going about a day and going to sleep. But Jess has inserted little parallel storylines along the way in the way the birds appear and what they do and how Ivy interacts with them. Originally, I had written the text as featuring a little girl only, but Jess introduced the family and a little set of twins as well, which is really adorable, and a dog. And that adds more to the story than I ever dreamed. Essentially, what I'm trying to say is that an illustrator should not be hired to basically illustrate what the text says. An illustrator should be adding more to the text and finding ways to add nuance and humour and fun. A great example is my book, This is Captain Cook, with the National Library, illustrated by Christina Booth. Because it's an historical book about someone's life, of course, it had to be set to a certain rhythm and certain storyline. But along the way, Christina and I worked through the idea of having this story told as a school play with children playing the characters in Cook's life. On top of that, Christina added wonderful visual elements like people in the audience chatting away, babies babbling, and also a uh, recalcitrant chalk that ran around the stage and caused much drama and delight. So these little visual ideas were really super cool and really made the story special. It doesn't have to be something complicated or detailed or something overthought. It just has to inject fun and delight for children. Okay, time getting away on us here. We're going a bit over long. I just have a lovely brand new cafe latte and I'm now ready to talk to you about picture book layout. Before I do, you need to pause the podcast, go and get yourself a traditional 32-page picture book, preferably a hardback, and meet me back here. Right, have you got your book? Okay, you might hear a little bit of noise here as I go through this book that I'm holding. I'm going to go through Peas in a Pod because it's a really classic layout. So uh, a general release picture book, of course, has 32 pages and around 26 to 28 of them are reserved for the story. Right, so holding the book in our hands, looking at the front cover. The front cover is what we call a recto page in that it is a page on the right-hand side and I'll explain that more as you open the book. So if we open this hardcover book, you'll see on the inside front cover is a, is a verso page, which is the left-hand page, and this has an end paper stuck to the back to, to the inside of the front cover. So this entire spread, the left-hand verso, the right-hand recto page, is the end paper. As we turn the page, the verso page on the left has nothing on it often because it's on the back side of the end paper. Then opposite this blank page is page one, recto page, and this is more often than not 
the half title page or the title page. Now let me explain the difference between the two. You don't have to have both a half title and a full title, but some picture books, often hardcover picture books will have that. The half title only has the title of the book and quite possibly a small illustration. It's usually clean and simple. Then the full title, which happens on the next recto page, has the title, the creators, and some more dramatic imagery, and usually the publisher's logo. If we have both a half title and a full title page, the half title will sit on page one recto page. We'd then turn the page to page two verso, and the full title would sit on page three recto page, just before the story begins on page four verso. But let's return to peas in a pod. So we have the half title on page one recto. Then as we turn the page to page two verso, we see that there's an imprint page there. The imprint page can also go at the back of the book. It just depends on the layout of the book and it can shift and change depending on how the narrative goes. But for peas in a pod, it's on the second page, page two. And the imprint page contains when the book was first published. It has the uh, publisher information and address, contact. Then it has copyright information and the rights reserved information, so all rights reserved and except for short extracts for the purpose of review, no part of this book may be reproduced, that kind of thing. Books used to always have the CIP record on the imprint page. The CIP record is the cataloguing in publication data that's required by the National Library of Australia to officially publish a book. So when you have your CIP data, you are published, that book is published, and those records are kept at the National Library. They're available online. As I said, books used to have this printed in the cover, um, inside the cover of the book on the imprint page, but generally that's not required now because it's easily accept accessible online and it's a bit wordy and unattractive and clutters things. So most books now will have, which Peas in a Pod does have, a CIP record for this book is available from the National Library of Australia. Underneath that we have the ISBN, uh, which is used worldwide to catalogue books and so publishers and um, booksellers can find your book quite easily and it's a 13-digit code. Then underneath that we generally have something about design and layout and typesetting. We might talk about how the illustrations were produced. We might also talk about how the paper was sourced and where it came from, where it was printed. And then right at the bottom you'll notice a series of numbers, usually 10987654321. And this is the print run. So over time, as your book goes into reprint after reprint after reprint, the numbers will be affected there to show what version or edition your book is. So your book may or may not have, the one you're holding in your hands, may or may not have that imprint information on that verso page. But let's move through. On the recto page, of course, is the full title page. So we had the half title, then the full. And this one will have, again, the title of the book, but that's when you'll include the creators. So here we have Peas in a Pod, Tanya McCartney and Tina Snurling. Then we have images and we have the logo of the publisher. 
Then the story starts. So we turn the page now and we are now at page one, two, three, one, two, three, four. So for Peas in a Pod, the story starts on page four on the left or the verso page. And that essentially starts the story as a double page spread. With this as Captain Cork, we actually have the story starting on a recto page on page five. So this is uh, necessary for that story because we wanted to give a little intro on that single little page and then open for dramatic effect to the double page spread. This is particularly because the entire book has a series of double page spreads showing a full stage, a school play stage. So it was important to start the story and then turn to that double page spread. So you may see this happen occasionally and it really simply depends on how the narrative is running. Generally, though, you'll find the books will start on page four on a verso page as a double page spread. Now, as you move through the storybook in your hands, you will move through around 30 pages. And when we talk about pages, we're not talking about a single leaf of paper. A single leaf of paper is, of course, two pages front and back. So you've moved all the way to the end of the story and some storybooks will finish on page 31. So when you're looking at the verso and recto pages, the verso page or left-hand side is always an even number, so 2468. And the recto page on the right is always an odd number, so 1357. Some storybooks will finish on page 31 and then we'll flip over to the final page, verso page, page 32, and that might have the imprint on it or a dedication page, or an information page of some kind, or it might even be blank. It might also, which is often the way, simply have an image that ends off the story in a really sweet way, a really sentimental way, or it could be a wordless, impactful image that actually finishes off the story proper. So with Peas in a Pod, we get to page 30 and 31, and the story actually ends on page 32. Because, again, we needed to have this, like with a, what I was saying about Captain Cook, we needed to have some kind of dramatic reveal. So the ending of this book is a single page, but it needed to be on its own because it's impactful and we didn't want to give it away before the kids turned the page. So the layout will depend on how your story is paced, where you need to, to place those impactful page turns, and again, can finish as a double page spread or can finish as a single page as Peas in a Pod does. So the imprint page, <clears throat> sorry, for Peas in a Pod was put at the, at the front of the book so we could finish the book cleanly with that impactful page. And then the um, 33rd page is, of course, the back of the end paper. So page 32 has an image. We have a blank back of the end paper. We turn over and we have the full end paper and then close the book and the verso page is the back cover. Hope I haven't completely confused you. Go through a bunch of picture books that you have in your collection and see how very differently each publisher will do their book, but that will be the generalised layout. One thing I did want to cover was how to lay out your text as you're writing. Generally for emerging creators and indeed for those emerging creators submitting to publishers, it's preferred that you just write the storyline out and don't think too much about uh, the placement of the text and image across the pages. 
Although writing the draft as a fluid narrative is really important, I think that it's a good idea to learn how to lay out your text across page count, just so you can understand that turning page capability, that cliffhanger sort of property and the pacing of a story. And it will also allow you to really get a grips with your visuals as you're going along. So I do recommend at least after the initial run through of your story, laying out your text across pages so that you can really learn to understand how text and image are placed and how a picture book works. So this is how I lay out mine. I literally start from the end papers. So remembering that the recto page is on the right, the verso page is on the left. So I would literally do verso end paper, recto end paper, turn the page. Verso blank, recto half title, turn the page. Verso imprint page, recto full title. And then I would start with verso page four, first page of the story. Do you see what I mean? So I'm going, literally going verso recto. The reason being is because even after 10 years of writing picture books, I still get confused about what's on the left and what's on the right and how the, how the structure works. So I always put verso and recto so I can remember exactly where I am on each page. So I would start my story with uh, the half title imprint full title. Then I would have verso page four plus recto page five, and I'd put my text under that. That would mean that this is a double page spread. So page four and five together means the image is double page. Now on pages, I don't know, six and seven, I might want to have two single pages. So I would put V page six with my text underneath that. Then in the next line, I'd put R page seven and put my text under that, indicating that they are two separate pages, two separate images. From there, I'd go right through the book and do the same double page spreads together and then the single pages on their own until I get towards the back and I would have, say, uh, verso page 32, last page of the story, last text under that, and then recto is blank, verso is end paper, recto is end paper, verso is back cover, just so I'm super clear. The other thing I do is lay out these uh, texts especially when I'm in production, I will create a Google Docs spreadsheet and I'll lay out the book in the Google Doc. This is particularly important and clever if you're working directly with your illustrator because they can then go in and document what they're working on. They can leave notes in the Google Doc letting you know how they're going and what they're, you know, whether they've got any questions. And the author can also leave notes in there for the illustrator and it's just easy to see it laid out in that way. It helps you get a real grasp of how things are moving along and how the story is being affected. Remember that the four end paper pages or the two leaves, one at the beginning and one at the end, are not part of the book's 32-page count. Well, we really need to wrap this up. So in finishing, I want to talk about the ending. I am huge on endings. When we ran the uh, kids book review award for unpublished manuscripts for picture books I was so stunned that like 80% of the manuscripts were sent just didn't really have an ending there was no resolve there was nothing exciting it just astounded me endings are everything 
because they wrap up the story and or they provide some kind of what might happen next ending. Endings should be dynamic, shocking, impactful, funny, clever, unusual, witty. They should in some way round out and resolve the story or put a question mark at the end of the story, but they need to be impactful because what they do is they inspire repeat reads. They give satisfaction to the reader. The reader wants to say again, again at the end of your story. And if you have no impactful ending or no clever or funny ending, this will not happen. And the best way to advance your career is to write a book that kids want to read again and again and again. So the next time mum or dad or grandma is out shopping, they will pick up another book by you because the kid acted so well to your story. With my book, This is Captain Cook for the National Library, it was really difficult to write the ending. This is because (laughs) that dear man's demise was pretty horrific and it's not something that you'd want to put in a children's book to start with, but also because a lifetime is a huge expanse of time and just wrapping it up with something trite is kind of an insult to many decades of living, particularly for a man of such uh, incredible achievement. So the ending for this book had to be cleverly thought out, had to be uh, dynamic enough to engage young children. Um, It had to be sentimental because the ending is quite sad. So it was a bit of a challenge. In the end, excuse the pun, I decided to go with a really simple image to end on page 32 and that worked really well. But just before we turn to the last page, I talked about what an amazing life he had had And then I referenced something from earlier in the story, and that was the shiny buttons uh, text that I had written a couple of times. I had commented on the captain loving his shiny buttons because this is a book for quite young children, and it was cute and fun and funny. So I somehow incorporated that into the ending in a charming and poignant way that made this bittersweet ending to this man's life and also age-appropriate to the audience. In fact, I love how unexpected that ending is and it's one of the comments that reviewers have made as the book uh, has been reviewed over time and it delights me that the reviewers get what I was trying to do. So make your endings memorable. Make them impactful and invite those repeat reads. There's absolutely no excuse for a sloppy ending. Of course I can't help myself. I have to just add one more thing. It's about rhyme. Oh my goodness. Along with endings, I'm huge on rhyme and I mean to say that I'm huge on great rhyme. Most, most, 99% of people cannot write rhyme well and it's not that publishers don't like rhyme they do everyone loves rhyme I love rhyme it's just that it's so difficult to get right and this is because people often underestimate rhythm and meter essentially when you're writing rhyme you do not want to be twisting sentences to affect an awkward end rhyme you don't want to be replacing the general natural order of words to fit. It just sounds ridiculous. And unless it's a nonsensical book, it can be really challenging to both read for comprehension and it just sounds daft. The other thing I see time and again is the word placement is fine and the end rhymes are perfectly fine as well. 
but the rhythm is completely wrong. So what we mean by rhythm is that when you're reading through something, it needs to have a particular beat. So the words, think of limericks, the stress on the words will fall at the same beat for each line or very similar beat. What happens is that people try to insert words so that they have to be forced to be pronounced another way. For example, the word apple, the way it's used in a sentence might be requiring the reader to say the word a pull instead of apple, which is so unnatural and just terrible for flow. There are many online resources for learning about rhythm and meter so that you can get that beat right. And Jackie Hosking of Pass It On uh, Ezine has a wonderful service that helps writers put their rhyming text in, in, you know, into a much better place. So do look her up. I'll put a link in the show notes below. The thing too about rhyme is that, you know, think of your favourite song. Most songs rhyme. But more often than that, the end words of each do not perfectly match, yet the lines still work. And this is because the power is actually in the rhythm uh, and the beat, the musical rhythm. And music also allows the singer to be able to stretch words out or say them quickly in order to fit to that rhythm, to that beat. Whereas natural spoken language is not like that. So you wouldn't go like that, like this when you're talking. You would just speak fluidly. Uh, I remember talking to a wonderful, very talented author about uh, her rhyming books and she's a fine musician and it wasn't until I pointed out that she was singing her own beat to her text in her own head which allowed it to fit into the rhythm but when someone with fresh eyes read that text and wasn't singing it in their own head the way she had prescribed it it was faltering we'd trip over the words and I wasn't able to connect them all in a way that was pleasurable or doable so it's important to be able to look at your text in a really rhythmic way and there are resources to be able to do that and learn that so don't give up on rhythm it's not something that uh, you know is impossible it just needs a lot of work and time I've been writing picture books for 10 years solidly and I would only probably now explore rhyming texts because it is that difficult and needs a lot of practice to finish off I've just got a few don'ts because we so often are told what to do but sometimes we miss uh, advice on what we shouldn't be doing and these are things that people are repeat offenders for. Okay, so reconsider the use of repeat text. Usually this kind of repetitive, repetitive, repetitive thing uh, really only works for very, very young children and it has, of course, benefits in a linguistic sense. For older readers, particularly those who are exhausted at bedtime, it can be the bane of their existence um, Gosh, I remember there was an old lady who swallowed a fly when my kids were little and I nearly developed a mental condition after years of repeating uh, repeat reads of that book. Uh, oftentimes repeat text is just added for the sake of it or because the author thinks that's just the way kids' books should be written, as a lot of people think kids' books should rhyme, which is just ridiculous. But uh, if repeat text is absolutely required and it's central to the plot and the rhythm of the story, then go for it. But make it short and sweet. Don't go on and on and on. Um, they're just brain bending and also it's a little bit old fashioned to be honest. Reconsider the classic storyline plot that's bound up in formula. 
Like I said before, learn all the rules, learn all the classic structures, but then break them. Surprise your reader and shake things up a little. Don't put cliches in your writing. You're so much better than that. And by cliches, I mean in both text and content. So an example of text is, of course, the good old it was a dark and stormy night. And of content, the princess lived in a castle and was waiting for her knight in shining armour. So don't work with cliches. Be really wary of endless similes. I think that similes are less common in picture books because there's a visual side to the story. Uh, So even if you're writing for older audiences, junior fiction or middle grade, be really careful. So a similar example is she shone like a diamond, she wept like a child, the water gushed from the tap like a waterfall. These really labour the story after a while, so think about different ways to say the same thing. Okay, I'm going to stop now, I promise. I have a nice cup of Earl Grey tea and I haven't had a snack. After all, I've been sitting on my butt for quite a while. In this chapter, we've just covered so, so much and I really hope that you found some little golden nuggets you can take with you on your journey. I'll definitely be doing some more podcasts on picture books with a greater focus on certain areas because although this overview is great, It's often times that we need something a little more focused and to actually know how to do something rather than just discuss it. So look out for those in the future. And now this brings me to the end of episode two. Apologies if it's long. I'm hoping that you're enjoying longer ones so that you can listen to them while you're illustrating or going for your daily walk in nature or God forbid doing housework. But do be in touch. There's contact details in the show notes if you have any preferences or any feedback on the length of these. The next one will be a little bit shorter. And on that note, next week, I'm really excited to announce that I'll be having an actual conversation with someone. Hurrah! And I'll be chatting with Jess Ratcliffe, who has done several books with me. And we'll be taking you through the uh, creation of one of our picture books. And I'm so looking forward to creating the next installment in this happy place, The Happy Book.